Hi, I'm Phoebe Lovett and this is Deep Read, a podcast where I speak to big thinkers about big ideas. Every episode of the series is accompanied by a further reading list, which you can find at public-library.online. And if you enjoy the episode, I'd really appreciate if you could like, subscribe and share this podcast with a friend. Thank you for listening. My guest today is the author and journalist Kieran Yates. I first met Kieran over a decade ago when we were both cutting our teeth as budding cultural journalists by day and enthusiastically participating in London's hip-hop and grime music scenes by night. Since then, Kieran has gone on to become an important voice in the British media industry, reporting on subjects as diverse as the lived experience of refugees in the UK, Muslim drag queens and the future of space travel for women. She's also the author of a new book, All the Houses I've Ever Lived In, Finding Home in a System That Fails Us, which is a thoroughly reported assessment of Britain's chronic housing crisis told through the lens of Kieran's own experiences of housing precarity from childhood onwards. If that sounds a bit heavy, well, at points it is, but it's also funny, poignant and rich in cultural history and personal anecdotes that bring the complex nuances of our current crisis to life. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Okay, we're rolling. Cool. Hi, Karen. Thanks for being here with me today. Oh, thanks for having me. In our in our weird little online podcast studio <laughs> where we sadly can't see each other, but we do know what each other look like because um, as we were just talking about off off mic, um, we've been in these London streets for quite a while. Been relentlessly about for a decade. And so, Honestly, yeah, your face is burned into my memory. It's, it's, it's a good one, though. It's a good one. Likewise, um, I just i I've got that kind of interesting feeling phenomenon where you sort of like spend a lot of time intensely reading loads of someone's work, and then they're they're kind of in your brain, and then you start talking to them. So I I was like reading your book over the weekend. Thank you for sharing it with me in advance of the publication date, which is twenty comes out in three days, right? Yep. Amazing. Congratulations. All the houses I've ever lived in. Um, woo. <laughs> what do you think? What do you think then? Honestly, like I'm still I'm still digesting. Incredibly well written, beautifully written, such a nice um mix of, you know, obviously pretty bleak shit <laughs> and um, you know, your personal history, a lot of humor. It's very readable, it's very well reported. It's a lot to digest. I I had this recurring thought while I was reading it. Like, if you took out all the place names in this book and you told someone this is like the United Kingdom in 2023, I mean, the situation is even bleaker than I understood it to be, to be honest. Mm. Um, Yeah, and it's mad because just in the in the writing of it obviously people probably haven't read any part of it yet already but just with the title and just some of the things that I've been chatting about people are just dming me with their housing woes like mm. quite frequently so I'm just like wow fucking hell I mean I obviously I have a, a relatively good insight anecdotally and from the reporting but people are just like telling me things that don't even feature in the book about mm. like oh I've had to pay to go to house viewings and I'm just like well I don't even what what you know yeah it's dystopian to say the least I mean I think there's a point in it where you say that you were sort of while you were researching the book you started screen grabbing tweets and stuff relating to the housing crisis and then you had to stop like within a few weeks or days even because it was just so overwhelming Mm -hmm. for 
anyone who might be listening to this outside of the UK or even someone who's in the UK who's like relatively insulated from this, um, I know this is a big question, but we hear this term housing crisis thrown around all the time in the media. How, how would you describe what that is? I think it is the fallout of um, a kind of a culture of housing, which has done a number of things. Um, Ideologically, what it has done is it has really split various tenants in this country into separate interest groups. So lots of middle class homeowners, traditionally uh, private renters, people in social housing, and now increasingly people in temporary accommodation. And, and sort of different living environments. And I think what's been happening politically is that lots of these groups, especially those with more privilege, have seen themselves as separate interest groups. And so what's happened is there hasn't been this kind of joint mobilisation or, or these coalitions that have been built in to provide solidarity for each other, to look after each other. And so now where we find each other, now we find ourselves as this place where it's like, you know, everyone is feeling a sharp corner of the crisis in different ways, but ultimately everything is connected. So, you know, a good example obviously is sort of the cladding issue, which has been an issue in lots of social housing for years and years and years. And now sort of lots increasingly middle-class renters and homeowners are experiencing, you know, the hard edge of that and like what that means for not only their valuation, but their ability to like rent and move from place to place. Mm. And and this is also connected to like escalating costs of rent, escalating costs of homes, instability for even middle class homeowners. And so I think that suddenly a lot of people who in Britain historically were seen to be more stable because they were homeowners are feeling increasingly unstable. And it's like, well, if it's not working for them, who's it working for? Suddenly we have to look at all of us and be like, how do we create a coalition? But right. um, that's like my that's like my broad take. But I mean, you know, logistically, it's really about a lack of house building. It's about a lack of maintenance about our housing stock, which is like the oldest in Europe and is now a public health emergency for so many people in this country. Mm-hmm. It's about unregulated property developers and landlords, which are making costs skyrocket. Um, and I think it's also about an inability to help people advocate for themselves and push back against government who are like fucking us in various different ways mm. and and we kind of feel it and see it every day and I yeah I think that it that feels pretty universal to me you know? yeah certainly there's it's sort of like take everyone has got a story you know you overhear conversations all the time people having like very extreme experiences like you say mm. paying to go to housing um viewings People And then people who are in mortgages having, you know, obviously with the interest rates going up, that sort of like created a crisis there for a lot of people. I really like commend you for taking this topic on because, again, while I was reading your book, I, I felt quite overwhelmed by it. Um, you know, I, I love the way that you um, interwove all these sort of like very, you know, not harrowing sounds quite extreme because the book is not harrowing to read it's very uplifting it's very touching it's funny also mm-hmm. <laughs> um but you kind of obviously have taken the approach where you've interspersed these anecdotes and statistics with really hopeful and sort of like 
optimistic ideas of how we might begin to tackle this situation, which I want to get onto later. But um, I wanted to ask first, like, why why did you choose this topic for your first book? Well, I think it's like, obviously, it's part polemic, part memoir. It's about moving around loads and loads. And, you know, as, as as you know, as a writer and kind of someone who's done journalism as well, it's like so much of our work is about, you know, a specific way of seeing and a lot of our work takes place in other people's homes. And so, you know, sort of artists, musicians, kind of tenants, various people who I've interviewed across my career, a lot of those interviews have, have taken place in like their studios or their living rooms. And so ultimately the conversations sort of develop into conversations about home, mm. which is a starting point for how people make work and make art and think about community. Uh, and so that's always kind of been, um, I guess, part of the way that I've approached my journalism and like certainly approach like writing about music and art and sort of people who are engaged with that. Mm-hmm. And you and obviously, then, sorry, sorry to cut you, continue, no, no. please. <laughs> but as I was saying, then like, you know, when I was kind of talking about this, especially in newsrooms, which, you know, are really populated by quite a specific kind of person usually who has been housing secure for a long time I really realized that actually not everybody has lived in like 25 30 houses right by you know by the time they get to their 30s and so I was like okay no there's something in here because I do keenly like have first-hand experience of a lot of the stuff that I'm reporting on and that's not to say that I can do a better job of reporting on it but it is to say that I, I hopefully can be a bit more sensitive and a bit more tender and maybe a bit more like funny and light about the way that I'm thinking about everything from material culture to like mold in your living room. So the sort of framework for the book is, is going through some of the, you lived in 25, 20 homes by the time you were 25 and you don't document every single one of them because it would probably have doubled the length of the book, but you do talk at length about a lot of them. And of course that, I mean, I was wondering, reading through that, like when you were younger, at what point did you become conscious that perhaps your experience of home as a young person was different to so many other people's? Or or in contrast, did you feel like you knew a lot of people who have experiencing this same sort of precarity? I think I... I think I did when I was younger. Like, I felt like I was having a very universal experience um, uh, because you know, lots of, you know, working class people begin their life in housing precarity, and then it follows them throughout their life. And I think Mm. that's kind of the underlying message of the book, which is like, yeah, each chapter says something different about the housing crisis through the lens of a place that I've lived. But it also says something quite universal about Mm -hmm. how housing precarity does like follow you from place to place. It just takes different shape um, as you sort of as you get older. So when I was younger, I I definitely felt that. And then when I, I remember like being younger in the playground and being like, I've lived in six different houses and people being like, no, you haven't. Or like those sorts of things and being like, uh, oh, is that weird? Like, right. has not everybody done that? Um, and then sort of obviously in the writing of the book, I've sort of reflected on some of those conversations I had when I was younger and, you know, the things that felt quite fun and and, you know, were kind of, felt quite interesting to me yeah now I'm like oh that was just about having these psychic breaks like being forced to make different friends in different areas being like forced to try and negotiate with my mom about you know whether we could stay in a place for a bit longer and what I could do 
and just constantly dealing with being out of control and mm-hmm. I kind of write about you know sort of starting little anxious routines mm-hmm. <laughs> and like being obsessed with even numbers and you know things like that and I think that you know that's the story of so many people in this country I think mm-hmm. there's, like, there's like 17 and a half million people don't have a safe secure or stable home in the UK and so I think that my experience is increasingly a dominant experience in the UK mm-hmm. and so there's loads of children who are probably developing anxious routines like that which is really awful to contemplate there was a lot about the um, you know obviously we're pretty much a similar age I think and Mm. we you know I I think we share a lot of uh, cultural references through music and stuff like that and and I also related to certain um, aspects of your experience with housing I mean I didn't move uh, 25 20 times before I was 25 Mm. Um, I, I did grow up on a council estate but I now realize reading your book that I was incredibly privileged that I got to stay there pretty much my entire childhood. My mum got our flat when I was, I think, three after her and my dad split up and I lived in it till I was 18. Mm. But it was also, you know, as you, as you write, it was like a neglected, it was an incredible location. I was very lucky that I got to grow up in central London, which when I tell people like that, they're like, oh, you must be so rich. And I'm like, well, no, like council housing, I mean, one of the good things about council housing in the UK is that it is, you know, it, it's not sort of like annexed into certain parts of, of the cities or or the country, like it is interspersed. So mm-hmm. I had the kind of like bizarre experience of growing up on a council estate in the middle of central London, mm-hmm. but it was neglected. Like I remember uh, like damp flaking off the ceiling into the bath and there was never enough hot water and the central heating was shit and like Mm-mm. you know all these things uh, again I'm not I'm not playing my violin because I think I had an incredibly fortunate experience of of council housing in the sense as I said that I got to stay in my home um, but I do also remember being a kid and like a lot of my friends at school lived in um quote unquote normal houses mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, doing it's such a good point because it's like those are the things that make you feel like you're living on a, a different planet because it's just yeah. so part of you and maybe your peers experience especially when you live in the kind of the community of a council estate and it wasn't like really for me like it wasn't until I went to uni that I really um kind of noticed like wealth like proper wealth and mm. that's when I was like oh I am living on another planet. I didn't realize people were even living in this completely different way. Mm. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. The chapter about goldsmiths is hilarious. Because even (laughs) though I didn't go to goldsmiths, I know exactly that scene that you're talking about. (laughs) Of like, I mean, you you could describe it better than me, but just sort of like that combo of like, you know, indie sleeves kids and like people who think that they're like doing like Edgar Allan Poe cosplay and like... (laughs) yeah just you know and also a lot of whom have come from like massive piles in the countryside and (laughs) sort of you know I think that one of the funny things you notice about when you get older having grown up on a council estate is like how much people love to like beg the aesthetic and um you know sort of the style and and whatever without having any lived experience of of what it actually means Um, I think like you can you can always detect like working class cosplay because it just takes the most hackneyed stereotypes right mm -hmm. it doesn't like it it doesn't not even like nuance it's just like all of those beautiful details so like part of the part of the chapter on living on a state I write about like kind of how thin walls 
uh, act as like a way for like music to leak in and out of and so that's how your kind of sonic ear or your like production ear if you're an artist gets developed because you hear all these different kinds of music from various communities coming through the walls or like you know coming through the walkway or wherever and like for me it was like really formative to like that's the first time I heard like dance hall Sure. Yeah, I loved that section when you and sort of I can't remember the exact quote, I should have written it down, but how you talked about how that sort of like um helped to develop you know, help pirate radio develop in the UK, like the literal sort of sonic um technicalities of council estates and the acoustics of my council estate were insane. You could hear someone walking down, you know, the hallway <clears throat> in like heels. It was like it was in your inside your brain. Yeah. Yeah, hundred percent. It's like those kind of those echoes, but those chat, but also like you could tell who people are, like even through the shadows, because you become so used to like the choreography of how people's bodies move. But yeah, yeah. you're right. It's like that's like, you know, that's like the first time where like you're hearing selections from your neighbours all the time. And whether that's because they're doing like just playing the radio or they're having the shubs or, you know, they're just playing music in the summer. That's, you know, the urban design of lots of council estates, especially in our cities, is how people's ears and taste develops and, and works. And it's so funny because we know that like gentrification obviously is a housing issue, but a lot of that from the archives are about like complaints, you know, mm. about neighbours' noise complaints. Mm -hmm. and you know even when I talk about that now and I talk about like the musical sharing that comes in from your next door neighbors a lot of people are like oh my god that sounds terrible and it's like uh not to not to glamorize like some of the harshest edges of the crisis but like no that was sick like that's great and that doesn't but (laughs) that doesn't (laughs) but that doesn't factor into like working class cosplay right people are like taking pictures maybe like I don't know in front of an estate or something right but they're not thinking about like how the sort of musical contribution of the urban design of the place has helped like the whole history of of British music and British like artistic life. The mu- music is obviously you know a huge part of your life, and I love the way that you threaded it throughout the book. I think when I first met you <laughs> back in the day, <laughs> um, we we were both. I think you were contributing for Rewind as well, right? Is that yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. I just wondered if you wouldn't mind taking me through a little bit about your sort of your career background, I guess, for anyone who might be unfamiliar with your work. You're very prolific. I tried to get through um, a lot of your, you know, your your archive your, of, of work and it's actually phenomenal. So could you just tell me a bit about, um, yeah, how you how you got your start in writing and how it's evolved over the years? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think for both of us, like we kind of came into music writing or journalism at this real kind of shift, this turn when, you know, people were trying to crack the online conundrum and, you know, people were moving onto online and, you know, kind of blog culture was really big. And I was like, you know, I I loved kind of like music blogs. I followed a lot of grind blogs and like I had my own, <laughs> which like thankfully is like lost to the digital ether because fucking hell. Very Did you delete it or is, is it definitely gone? <laughs> I deleted it. Scrubbed it from my own memory. But yeah, like I followed a lot of people's blogs and, uh, you know, I sort of like really liked that culture of like a DIY approach to just like writing your like music culture. And I was going to a lot of like grime gigs and I was going to, dubstep parties and various just kind of my cultural world I was able to just like take some pictures and write about it and that felt really freeing and and it felt like I had 
you know, access to like various music cultures that I was enjoying because sort of mainstream publishing felt so inaccessible. But then because of that sort of time, right, 2010, 2011, I think for a lot of uh, mainstream papers, also certainly the case of The Guardian, it was kind of seen as, um, I don't know, a, a lesser pursuit to write for the on, the online section mm-hmm. than to write in print. Mm-hmm. And so a, a part of the way where a lot of writers got their first start was like writing online blogs. Mm. And so I did a work experience at The Guardian for like two weeks and then sort of pestered them with loads of ideas. And then they were like, okay, you can write, you can pitch to write for our online blog, which was like 80 quid back then. And that was like loads of money for me to like, just the idea of getting paid to write was wicked. And so I like kind of pitched and, you know, wrote bits and bobs of things that they just weren't covering in other places. And then from there sort of, pitched to other places like Rewind I was desperate I was desperate to write for Rewind and uh Super Super <laughs> at that time wow you're really <laughs> taking me back now <laughs> <laughs> but it was just like because it was like it felt like people that I knew because it felt like you know they're writing about the music that I liked and yeah. you know it was it was like cool I feel a bit of a part of this community because I don't I don't understand how like the independent necessarily would cover this or make room for me mm. Um, and so I did that for like loads of years, just writing online, writing digitally. Like I write in the book that, you know, this was also kind of really under the shadow of that 2008 recession. So like loads of my peers, I was also like flyering for that club night, super duper flying. <laughs> and I was like waitressing and I was like, you know, doing loads of uh, like unpaid work where I could. I was like writing bios for record labels. I was just going out and like dancing and partying and like trying to review the nights I was going to. So it was really like a haphazard approach, but kind of trying to do everything. Mm. Um, and that kind of the DIY sense of how to make it in media if you weren't white or a Nepo baby or very upper middle class was kind of like that felt like a way in. Mm. And it sort of was a way in for me. Um, I never really, I never got like, a coveted staff job which is what I always wanted when I started mm-hmm. out and that turned out to be for the best because you know it, it kind of developed my approach to pitching ideas and then when the magazines that I wrote for like folded or like they didn't get funded and I, I had to pitch other places I'd already kind of flexed that like muscle in my brain to be able to know how to do that and I wasn't I didn't feel like I was ever completely out of ideas yeah Totally. While you were talking, I was thinking about how do you think about the impact of the housing crisis on London's sort of creative scenes and industries? I mean, as you point out totally fairly, a lot of people who are working in creative industries in London are, you know, people who are lucky enough to have financial support from their families or other sources. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and that's not really anything new, but when we're looking at the situation now, particularly for younger people, I mean, when when I like think about being 23 or 24 now, not as you say that it was easy sort of when you graduated or, or you know, I graduated a couple of years later, it definitely didn't feel like um, boom times mm-hmm. <laughs> and it hasn't since. But um, I sometimes now I'm like, how the hell, you know, do young people, I'm talking like 22, 23, 24, how can they even think about, creativity when they're like looking at paying 1200 pounds a month just for a room I think this all the time because it's yeah I mean 
housing, of course, but it's also like you can see in sort of the cultural makeup of our everyday life, right? So like we've seen club closures, we've seen like studio space closures, we've seen like, you know, spaces that may might have been available to us even 10 years ago completely mm-hmm. go because of rising rents, because of, you know, various regulation issues. And so there's also less places to go Mm. and it's really expensive like yeah. I don't I don't know the moment the year zero of a standard like ticket to a rave being like 20 quid or upwards but right. that to me is like okay how do you manage that and then this is you know against like a housing crisis where rents are just like eye-wateringly high I don't know how people really manage that day to day and then we have like the biggest wage freeze that this country's experienced like since well in our in our history mm. so it's like raise you know we know that wages aren't rising it's extremely competitive time to try and get some fixed wage labor and then advocate for yourself in um, a workspace even if you are part of a union and then it's extremely difficult for you to advocate in your housing situation against a landlord or a property developer because landlords basically are able to set whatever rate that they want because they are no, there is no rent stabilization or regulation in this country. Mm. Um, you know, that <clears throat> there are like moves to try and roll this out in places like Scotland in rent pressure zones, but like certainly in the cities um, across England, that's not the case. And people are feeling it because landlords are providing housing stock that the government aren't. So they, you know, the government almost relies on landlords to provide housing and so it gives them so much power to just increase rents and you know when, when people can't afford them and they're made homeless I wonder what they do yeah but to answer your question about the creative community it's also like in the researching of this book I really realized like you know how much state provision there was for housing in you know in sort of the 60s and 70s and 80s in this country where people were able to have a lot of studio space where they were able to have space for creative endeavors and that's not to say that it was like you know this uh, completely utopian time but there was more access for people to be able to build art and you know pursue cultural production in a way that which just you know it just doesn't exist now I mean when I think about my own parents neither of whom were from affluent backgrounds but they both made it out of their small towns came to London when they were like 18 19 mm-hmm. and they had council flats within months yeah this is it it's like people who would historically been in council housing are now in private renters housing which is which is just so expensive and so precarious and you know you're discriminated against all the time especially if you're from a marginalized community and so it, it becomes so difficult to then free up space to be like okay how do I hold my community close which is why I really try and like revere and celebrate the people who are doing that Mm. in the book because it's so hard to do because like trying to get a studio space alone is part of the reason why people have relied on things like you know co-working spaces or members clubs but of course (laughs) I don't know how you how do you how do you even begin to afford that if you're like a student or whatever yeah so I don't know what your experience is but mine is definitely like you know, people who have some stable housing just opening up their house and being like, come and we can like shoot some things. I've got some studio space. Let's all like shoot something here. You can use it for photography. You can use it to write. You can use it as a co-working space and you kind of try and share the space as best you can. Mm. 
Well, I mean, I've spent a lot of my adult life in in the US sort of navigating their housing situation, <laughs> which uh, is pretty intense. I mean, New York in particular, I don't know how much you're up to speed on the way that sort of like the private rental market works in New York, but I mean... It's absolutely insane. I would say now London's got to the point where it might be coming close. That was something else I thought about when I was reading your book. And we've kind of touched on it a little bit about when you were young, sort of making up like rituals, but which actually I used to do as well. And I'm wondering if it was related. I used to like count all the paving stones on my way to school in a kind of quite strange way. Anyway, (laughs) I'll I'll unpack that elsewhere. Um, Thinking about you know, again, for me, it was a different situation. It was a out of choice living in the US, um, choosing to move around a lot, having the privilege to be able to move around a lot, but just sort of like the ambient anxiety I think I had the entire time I was doing that, which I wasn't, at the time, I probably wouldn't even have called it that. And now I look back and think, I used to wake up every night in the middle of the night, either worrying about paying my rent or just feeling otherwise stressed out, my body just having some sort of visceral response to um, you know, just yeah, sort of like of the constant feeling of instability. But that's, you know, it's not good for our bodies physically. Obviously, it's not good for our mental health. But to be holding that stress and, and tension and living your life teetering between instability, we know is not good for our bodies, you know. No, I mean, I, I don't think it's kind of ebbed away a little bit in recent years for me, partly to do with age, partly to do with being in a bit more of a stable situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Th- the the impact it's had on me health wise i feel like i've had an entire hormonal reset yeah yeah it's changed my sleep it's changed the way that i eat and again i don't think until that happened i was conscious of how much moving around in the way that i did was impacting me and again i was doing it in incredibly privileged it was my choice you know it was fun it was exciting but mm. however you're doing it well, unless maybe you're like moving from like multi-million pound holiday home to holiday home or something like that. Mm. It is, it's, um, it's hard to overstate how impactful that is on your health, as you say. And it made me think about like, yeah, just the sort of residual effects of, of this current situation on so many people, even those who are quote unquote privileged enough to have, you know, a home where they're, they're leasing, knowing that they could be kicked out at any moment. Mm -hmm. well that's the thing it's like when we you know the housing crisis is a public health emergency and Mm -hmm. that's not only to do with you know disrepair of mold and damp or you know your air quality or air pollution it's also to do with like yeah the adrenaline that's like coursing through your body all the time when you're when you're don't know where you're going to live next you know when there's Mm -hmm. like bailiffs like at your door or like agents of the state at your door or you know landlords like breathing down your neck it's like all of these are are creating the conditions for like a hyper stressed and a hyper squeezed populace who also then feel increasingly like they're powerless mm. and those things together is like you know how does this contribute to what what the future of britain will look like mm. like if you have to make an economic argument it's like, what is the cost of treasury for an aging population who don't have secure housing? Like, what what are we going to do there? Like, what is, we know that insecure housing costs the NHS like 1.3 billion a year. So all of these things are connected. It's like, you know, what, where can we possibly go next 
in terms of not even making our houses fit for purpose for an aging population, for disabled tenants, for, you know, to, to kind of work towards green futures, like retrofitting is hugely expensive. The government do not seem to be prioritizing this issue. And it's like, okay, so <laughs> we pick up the slack by feeling that anxiety for ourselves in, in various different ways, right? Mm. So we're like, okay, well, maybe I need to take an individual approach. And I think that that is, we know that that's capitalism and government rhetoric working as it should when we individualize the crisis. And so I think it's just like we need to continue to make the point that it's through community and it's through grassroots organizing and teaching and collective action that we can actually push back. Mm-hmm. And so it just, like, I think it just helps you feel like you're less alone, which is like such an important starting point. And it like seems obvious, but when you're in it, of course you feel alone. Like you, you do feel alone because you mm-hmm. are, because it's just you like packing up your boxes. But you know, there are solutions. Yeah. I mean, I think it is really important to, I interviewed Elijah recently, who I know is a friend of yours. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I really enjoy his sort of optimism, quite <laughs> frankly, because I do think that there's been sort of a swing towards despair in this mm. country on all sorts of levels. Um, and not least, you know, with this situation. Mm. And again, uh, yeah, I, I think it's so um important as as you're doing to keep seeking solutions and and like reminding ourselves that the situation is entirely hopeless but it, it it's been really interesting to watch this swing towards you know like particularly people of our generation i think sort of plague island yeah <laughs> hate it here yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> like i don't i can't remember a time in my life when i've heard and to be quite up front used this level of like pejorative language about the UK mm-hmm. um I th- which I think has also been exacerbated by Brexit and the fact that we can't leave <laughs> <laughs> um yeah. and I yeah I just I've been thinking about that a lot because I suppose that sort of you know again it's really important to seek solutions and not just be like oh fuck this I'm giving up. Although if that's your personal choice, then that's totally understandable. Um, But it it does feel heightened by the the sense that, you know, before you potentially could go somewhere else because this uh, public housing is a lot better managed in a lot of European countries than it is here. And even though, you know, everywhere is experiencing inflation and and increased cost of living, et cetera, it doesn't seem as desperate anywhere else in in Western Europe as as it does here. That's correct, right? I'm not sort of yeah sizing there no it's like you know there's like places like Finland are often tired as you know having a better approach definitely in terms of street homelessness you know Mm -hmm. eradicating or at least like being much further along in helping street homelessness and Berlin's often touted as you know an example of some kind of kind of rent stabilization I mean Berlin obviously still has its problems in terms of you know costs and and all those sorts of things but I think it's at this point it's just the fact that (laughs) our solutions just look like they are a long time in the future and Mm. I think that's a really good point that you make about this idea of of feeling like just depressed about our reality because the reality is that you know for a lot of people the future is a scary place you know the future Mm. doesn't feel optimistic Mm. you know that's like the narrative of our generation has been about you know climate 
futures and our current approach to the climate being like in a really desperate, scary place where it which it is and yeah. you know our economic solution is not going to like change overnight that's going to be like a long haul you know sort of the racial tensions that we're experiencing in the country which like contributed to brexit are not going to leave overnight so we know that there are like social political economic climate things to deal with in this country which i think for a lot of people do not make them feel optimistic about the future which is why part of our political rhetoric has been about going back right about like making Britain great again, mm. about returning to a time when Britain was great because, you know, there's something solid to hold on to for a lot of people on the right. They have something that they can say, this was a time when we were materially better, whereas the future is about, you know, radically imagining something better mm. that maybe not everybody can see in their mind, right? So mm. they're like, well, that's too abstract. That's too difficult to consider. Let's just Let's just go back to a place that I can concretely see. And I think that that has done such a, like, so much damage to our political reality and subsequently the way that we live. And so, you know, having braiding optimism and hope into that is like the only way that we can move forward because it's just too easy, isn't it? It's like in music journalism, like it's t- it's easy to write a bad review and it's harder to write a good one. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, you know, I I definitely like think that in my like political and social approach because, you know, otherwise what's the point? Like, if you're not, like, earnest and hopeful and, like, you want to see the future of, like, your social and cultural community, then what's the alternative? Like, just, mm-hmm. like, existential crisis forever. Like, I don't know. I don't have the energy for that. Totally. I I guess it's sort of, there's also, you know, and you explore this throughout the book, thread it in, this sort of double, the nuance of also being, you know, um, child of first generation immigrants and, well, no, sorry, was your mum born in the UK or yeah so my mum's born in the UK my dad's born in India sorry Mm um but sort of like the idea that uh, you know even though this is home there's also another you know idea of home that exists for you you've written about you wrote about that in the the good immigrant I think about your experiences of going back to India and Mm -hmm. it's complicated I think there's obviously been a shift where like you know a lot of um children of immigrants are now I can't personally relate to it because my parents are white but this idea of you know being forced to make up or making a home in these conditions in this country that your parents came to in, in the hope of sort of building a better life and then being like actually <laughs> this isn't that great but then equally of course you know nowhere's perfect and there's I'm sure lots of complicated realities about perhaps returning to like your ancestral motherland or you know it's not as not as simple as sort of like being like I'm out yeah I think it's that it's like that thing of like when I was younger like my family you know my grandparents lived in Southall and Mm. you know it was kind of like when I was a teenager it was kind of normal for like various celebrations or Diwali or whatever people would just like have the Indian flag and be waving it and be like shouting out India and then you get older and you realize that it's not necessarily India that you're shouting out but it's like a British India, you know, a British Indian diaspora identity is mm-hmm. really what you feel tinged to, hinged to. And it's like the things that I have learned, the things that I've absorbed from that is like, how do you make a state, how do you grant yourself a stake in society or a stake in a community, right? And I think that it's a question that we're all asking of ourselves, diaspora kids, you know, even more, which is like, how how do I have a stake? Like, how do mm-hmm. I have a say? how do I advocate for myself? How do I give myself agency when 
I feel like I'm coming up against resistance all the time. Mm. But it's like, well, we can resist too. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. things happen to us, but we we can push back against them. Like gentrification is something that happens to us, but we're something that can push back against that. Like we can have something happen amongst us too. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like we, you know, we, we're constantly told that we're powerless. We're constantly told that these things are too big for us. And then, I don't know, for me, it's like you empower yourself by just learning a bit more information about like, oh shit, like the admin <laughs> of a tenancy agreement makes me realize how I can actually like talk about it or push back against that. Yeah, and totally. Really empowering. It's like um, financial literacy, right? Like when you're growing yes. up and your parents don't necessarily have huge amounts of capital to manage, they they're not that financially literate themselves and therefore they can't pass that information on to you. Yeah. And now obviously there's been a big movement sort of through social media around financial literacy. And, um, you know, I guess that through books like yours, people can learn more about the actual sort of technicalities of, of these sort of like very mad agreements people have to sign up for to, to have a home in the UK and just yeah. how disempowered you can be when you don't actually know your rights. Well, 100%, which is why it should be in the curriculum, right? Because, like, housing policy is, like, a notoriously complicated area of law, like, mm. partly by design. And so, like, we, you know, we need to be able to know how to talk about it. But I think the book is also about, like, just for all of us, just to give us, like, a better insight into, like, how we are all living in Britain today. Mm. So, like, you know, even when I talk about, you know, like, obviously being South Asian, living in a Punjabi home, and the sort of tchotchkes and the interior design yeah. and the kind of uniformity of some of the objects and some of the ways that, it, you know, these houses look, whether it's like plastic mm. coverings or like fake gold tissue boxes or whatever. It's like these houses are not sort of presented like in in like Vogue or L Decoration or like Vogue Home or Architectural Digest very frequently. And so you just kind of grow up being like, oh, my taste is, like, outside, like, what is beautiful. Yeah. And so, you get, you know, you as a working-class person, as a working-class person of colour, you feel like your taste is policed all the time. Yeah. And so it's just, like, sometimes it's just, like, giving yourself pause to be, like, no, these things are really beautiful. These, in my experience, these things bring with them a migration history. But for, like, so many working-class people, they're just told, like, you can't organise your own life. You can't organise, like, the way that your house looks. And so mm. you can't be trusted to then make decisions about how your life should be organized for yourself politically right Mm -hmm. so it's like these this kind of thing the way that we live like interiors and taste and the things that Mm. we bring with us are so important and so beautiful and I think it's just like about giving space to that as well because otherwise where are you seeing yourself totally and I think something you know that's really great and important about the book is that you know, I mean, it's, it seems mad to have to state this, that home isn't just statistics and like agreements and leases and contracts, but so much of the sort of dialogue around it in our culture is like uh, dominated by that. And your book has so much color and vibrancy and warmth and all the details, you know, that you use to evoke all these places that you've lived uh, really just remind us that like, actually, this isn't just about you know sort of like making money on the property ladder but like this is this is where our lives play out this is there's a beautiful bit at the end where you write about falling in love in a home and like that being the setting for this incredible life-changing thing that happened to you mm-hmm. which is very moving <laughs> oh. <laughs> <A> little tear. <laughs> oh no I, lo- I love love in it but it's very <laughs> very sweet um I just wanted to you know I think one thing that is changing now, like we're obviously a country that's obsessed with home ownership, 
Um, but I do feel like, I mean, obviously partly out of necessity, but the, there is a swing happening right now where um, slowly but surely people are beginning to question that, <laughs> um, you know. It, because it doesn't, it doesn't chime with the changing demographics and the changing mm. economic reality for so many people. Like there is like a real specificity with the British obsession with home ownership, yeah. which obviously leads back to ideas of aristocracy, home ownership, wealth, and, you know, the continual propping up of our class system. And so home ownership is really built into the British cultural and social imagination. But it's like, <laughs> we there are ways to push back against that because it's like, if you are not part of that British elite, then, okay, what does life look like for you? And historically, it's been like, I don't know, fuck you, isn't it? And I think now it's like, no, okay, now we want, we don't always want homes sold to us as a luxury commodity through the lens of ownership. Mm. We want to look at long-term solutions for good private rental or good social housing, like good social rented housing that is priced at a genuinely affordable level, not like under the metric of affordable housing. So mm. it's like, these are, I think you're right. Like these are the new approaches, which I, I'm like excited by, which is like, how do we have good quality long-term rentals where someone can live in a rental accommodation for like 30, 40 years and and not feel like the, the pressure of a landlord evicting them constantly? Mm. And I think that this is something we're going to have to deal with, with like an aging population and more and more people in this country who are living in precarious ways, like... How could we, like, I just don't understand how we can manage it's not where we are. situation. I just, like... I that just, much is clear. It's, it's crazy, right? It's crazy. It's, like, even that idea, that neoliberal approach to, like, building competition into the rental market, you know, which if we take uh, the 1980 Housing Act by under Thatcher's government as the year zero for this, you know, the whole idea of that was, like, oh, well, you put them into the competitive market and then it increases the quality of rental accommodation because, you know, they have to compete for your business as tenants. And it's like, obviously that doesn't fucking work. Obviously that yeah. doesn't work. Look at where we are. But, you know, there are lots of conservatives who really hold on to that idea that like, no, no, we, we keep increasing rent and then like the quality of, of property will just increase because they're in the competitive market. And it's like, no no mm. no come on we need to like put our energies into things like tenants unions and really learn how we can do something a bit better so has the process of writing this book made you feel more hopeful I think so I think yeah. it's like you know I wrote it also during a you know it was kind of during lockdown but also during a period of like very rich rent strikes that people were winning certainly in student mm. accommodation where there has been like lots of citizen activism in kind of around mold and documenting mold but also there's been like people putting pressure on policy whether that is um about the fight for clean air with rosamund kissy deborah mm. like really pushing for like the clean air act whether that is like the family of awaba shark who was a three-year-old boy who died under like you know terrible mold moldy mm. conditions and so I think these conversations now are really uh becoming more mainstream I think that the activism that was done by Grenfell residents and subsequently residents from social house like in social housing tenancies across the UK 
Mm. It's really, you know, has really got like urgency and energy behind it. But I also think that like, yes, of course, housing policy needs to change from central government, but policy is just a place to look and not the place to look. Mm. And things like learning what to do if a bailiff comes uh, and like harasses your neighbour is really useful. Like having that information is really useful and knowing what you can do, like knowing how to read a tenancy agreement and get it, knowing what to do um, when you want to join your renters union, like your local renters union. London's renters union is like really powerful and really great. And I'd also just urge if you are a homeowner, like you're not a separate interest group. You know, I think a lot of the time people on the left feel so guilty that they own property. They don't want to be transparent about it or they feel like they can't be part of a working class housing movement. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, of course you can. You're exactly the kind of person that should go to your local renters union and advocate uh, for better conditions for everybody. And that's the way that you distribute the privilege that you have. Right. And I think that people on the left really have to kind of get over those feelings of like middle class guilt because it's not useful for the movement. Like look at look at the kind of strike action in terms of the labor market that's happened in the last year or so it's like that really makes the point about how we use collective action to build something better and I like truly believe that that is something that we can win and maybe I won't see it in my lifetime but (laughs) we'll see it and it's like this is we're just we're part of a larger conversation of housing activism and I think that you need to be hopeful because people are winning and I think that that's something to be optimistic about. Do you feel, on a personal level, like, what what do you see your future? I, I read, a, I don't know if you read that um, article that Jason Okunde wrote in The Guardian the other, last week, I think. Yeah. About um, talking exactly about what you've just discussed about sort of like this maniacal obsession with home ownership in the UK and why he rejects it. Mm-hmm. But then ultimately he's like, if I got enough money, I'd buy a house anyway. Um, do you, do you see your future in the UK? Do you like want you know, you're obviously helping to tackle this issue in a really important way. Is there a part of you that's just like, <laughs> do you know what? I might just say fuck this and go and live on a beach somewhere. Or... Oh yeah. hundred percent. Like, yeah. I, <laughs> yeah, no, no. Like I don't, I don't know what my future holds. Like I, like I am a homeowner now. I literally bought a house in the last year. Mm. Thanks. Thanks to like, um, partly the book advance, but this is the thing. It's like under the like undignified conditions we find ourselves in, we know that it is still cheaper than renting. But if I could do that again, I don't, I don't know. I don't feel secure. Like the continuation of this mortgage is based on like, you know, me being able to have yeah. work and also like, to be frank, like the, the kind of success of my relationship with my partner, because yeah. if, we, if we broke up tomorrow, I would be renting again. You know what I mean? I mean, if that section on you falling in love is ending to go by, <laughs> sounds like you're good. <laughs> this is it. It's like, you can't, you know, it's like, well, my precarity is really hinged on things, which, totally. I, which are just like, you know, I don't I mean, have generational wealth. I don't have yeah. savings. I don't yeah. have like, a pot of money that can like save me and so yeah. I'm just like I don't know I don't know like what the next few years looks like for me yeah. and I also like really don't know like if if I like lose my job my partner lost his job like we would be renting again somewhere like it's 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 not sustainable in that way and it's interesting because I speak to a lot of like my writer friends and my activist friends who have bought property and feel exactly the same way about it they're like mm-hmm oh, okay, well, I don't know if I can sustain this financially. Right. Um, I've got complicated feelings about it because 
um, I don't feel secure. And I had this idea that, you know, finally, after a life of like housing precarity, I'd buy property and I would feel a semblance of security. And that has been a, like a proper anticlimax because it's yeah, like, of course, you know, with the interest rate situation and inflation, it's not it's not the straightforward thing that it would have been a couple of generations ago, um, which add, it just adds to the <laughs> monumental head fuck of the whole situation. Hundred percent. It's like, well, we have a crisis in our labour market right now, so like, you know, that that impacts everything. But it's also like, it's not just the house you live in, is it? It's like your street your local community, your neighborhood, your borough, your city, if all, if everybody is like having housing stress, then this isn't working for anybody. Like it definitely isn't working for me. If like, you know, my neighbors and my local community is like completely stressed and like changing and moving and, you know, people's homes are being demolished. It's like, well, okay. I don't, I don't see my, I don't necessarily right now see my long-term future in London and a huge part of that is because I simply won't be able to afford it. Yeah, I mean, any vision of like having a home big enough to house a family, it just yeah. seems untenable, like, yeah, which is a mad, a mad thing. And I don't I think feel- it helps that people are not transparent about the fact that a lot of working class people are able to buy homes by exceptional circumstances. Mm-hmm. Like my working class friends who uh, are on the housing ladder, it's like, you know, they work at a label and they got a surprise bonus. They like got, you know, they had like um, a job where they got a, like a surprise promotion. But like if they lost their job next week, they would have to sell up and rent again. It's mm-hmm. like it is by very exceptional circumstances that lots of working, working class people are able to um, buy homes. But then they don't necessarily feel secure long term in them either. And that is, you know, I don't think that this is a crisis of home ownership necessarily. Obviously, we know that the pure diversity of like how terrible our housing system is and how it impacts the most vulnerable tenants in this country is where like the like for me is where the sharpest edge of the crisis lies. But it's just like it's just people are not transparent about, you know, the underlying inheritocracy which enables people to buy in this country. Mm -hmm. And I think that that also contributes to why you know housing is seen as a luxury commodity right because you see them via like Renault accounts on Instagram (laughs) or like you know and they're kind of sold to us as like an aspirational lifestyle but I find that really like disturbing yeah I mean that's we could do a whole other podcast on that and I was there's some incredible stats in your book and one of them was that 91% of influencers are white I know it's crazy. I was like, wow, that's mad. And just sort of like, you know, what you kind of going back to what we said before about, um, you know, like the aesthetics of interiors now and how they have been totally sort of whitewashed literally and figuratively. And, and you'd see like these kind of gray homes, these yeah, yeah. So many gray homes. <laughs> yeah like you know like I get people wanting this kind of frictionless existence in times of like political and social chaos and so like yeah grage is some people's antidote to that totally that's how they gain control yeah um, decanting their rice into um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm not gonna lie I've decanted my rice into some <laughs> containers they got me there listen I love Stacey Sullivan as much as the next person but I She's do think great. that it also just becomes but again it's like even that taste is policed isn't it it's like it becomes yeah. a way for like 
certain kind of elite publishing to kind of turn their noses up at the way in which women enact like the labor of domesticity and yeah. labor of making home and yeah. you know you can I, I just wonder like working class women can never get it right through the eyes of the British publishing elite you know yeah. and you know that's that's where we find ourselves and it's really fucking depressing it's, it's uh, the fetishization of interiors, obviously sort of very much boosted by the pandemic and everyone being inside for the best part of two years. I mean, I was going to say it's interesting, but it kind of makes sense as a direct like inverse correlation, like how hard it is to secure housing and how much people I don't like the flat I grew up in was messy. Like I don't remember sort of there being, you know, not to no shade to my mom, she did her <laughs> best, but like I can't remember there being any sort of pressure to have these like perfect interiors, and obviously that's you know social media now people feel like if they haven't got a togo sofa and like Mm-mm. you know all these sort of trappings of of what an ideal home is supposed to look like that on top of like you know the shame of not owning it or whatever it's just so much pressure yeah and it's also about like this kind of erasure of human life in your home which I I find really problematic because it's like it doesn't allow kind of it doesn't allow the messy reality of like the Mm. complexity and and messiness of like everyday life right but even that is policed it's like you know if you're a low-income person and you don't have a lot of stuff it's because you're poor and if you're wealthy it's because you're minimalist and if you have a messy home, it, you know, you're maximalist if you're like through the lens mm. of class taste and you're just like messy and can't organize your life if you're working class. So like even even the, our approaches to this is so interesting. And I talk a little bit in the book about like how every element is gentrified, like even mm. there's even like moving like moving companies, mm. like specifically for influencers, and they have like pastel uh, designed vans and they come and they pack up all your stuff for you and they take them and you know they have there's one called, the, the, there's, there's one called davis and mac where they like you know then post with their sort of you know influencer friends and it's like wow even like moving is is become like this aspirational like sort of lifestyle way to do it and right. then like portico are you know an estate agents who have like you know <laughs> like tote bags that people walk around with and it's like this is really strange like why are you wearing your estate agent merch or like modern house which is just like an estate agent rebranded as a kind of lifestyle and like some upper middle class lifestyle publication so yeah. you know there is such a there's such a way in which housing is presented to us that I think all contributes to this idea of like a luxurious frictionless life which distracts us from the reality of the society that we live in and I I would argue that our energies are much better suited making sure that everybody has a right to fair housing and everybody has a right to home okay because when I was reading it um I was struck by you talking about libraries and Mm -hmm. you know um which home was it you were the one in Hayes I think it was where you lived next to a library (laughs) and just like how that was such a important sight of escapism for you and you know again I think we read a lot of the same books growing up because we're of the same generation and just like that really resonated with me <laughs> reading those Sweet Valley Higher books deeply problematic but deeply anyway. problematic but being like wow god it must be so cool to be white and blonde and live in California I think I'll just a perfect size six. <laughs> yeah, perfect size six. <laughs> oh yeah 
Wow, um, crazy. Um, but yeah, you know, in tandem with music, obviously reading has been, you know, a massive form of psych solace and, and a way for you to maybe have a little break from your environment when it wasn't quite what you might hope for in that moment. Um, so I just wondered if you had, if you were able to share a couple of book recommendations, something that um, recently impacted you and, and a book that you would recommend to everyone. Yeah, I think like the most transformative book I've read recently is by the US writer Hanif Abdurraqib, and it's mm. called um, A Little Devil in America. And it's a collection of essays um, that kind of write about uh, black performance in art. And it is just so beautiful. It kind of takes us through like Beyonce to Whitney to uh, just like this sort of history of like dance competitions and the soul train awards and you know it's just a really really beautiful poetic look at cultural production and cultural life and it's written in like the most tender sensitive way and i I follow him on twitter but i have to confess i haven't read that one no it's so beautiful like i think you'd really like it because like yeah some of the references but also just a way of like you know thinking about culture as this like wholly transportive transcendental experience that can take you away from your reality for a moment you know and hope for better and uh when we're thinking about like a radical imaginary that's what like good art should do right it like it helps you imagine a better world and I think that's what we're all in service of you know really absolutely um I also really love um having and being had by Eula Bliss which is also a book about kind of like living and home she kind of writes about like <laughs> kind of like how you do that under capitalism so like she talks a lot about like stuff and material culture um and I and I just really like that and then uh sort of in terms of like British uh books I really loved uh Feminism Interrupted by um Lola Olafemi who's also yes. in the book but I just think yes. it's one of the best pieces of like feminist critique and writing that I've read over the past few years so yeah I really recommend that okay amazing three books I haven't read so I have to pick them all up thank you very much for your brilliant recommendations and also for your time oh, and really? again for you know writing this book because it is um it is really important to have these sort of like hopeful um and practical um breakdowns of what we can do to tackle what can feel like a kind of insurmountable situation so thank you for writing the book no, it's so nice to talk to you and it's really nice to talk to you because it's like you also get it like you get like why it's important to like preserve culture like in and out of where we live like in, in our yeah. homes and our houses and I just yeah I appreciate that and I mean I, I guess particularly you know for London and just like fearing its cultural decimation yes because of partly because of the situation among other related situations mm. you know I suppose that's like where I have the most skin in the game and I it yeah it, it makes me feel sad to be honest but I'm not doing anything practically to tackle it so I appreciate like the kind of the outline that you give for people to how they can get started at least about thinking about that about being proactive rather than just sort of like moaning about it endlessly which is our <laughs> our shared national <laughs> preoccupation <laughs> Uh, well we do have the coronation to look forward to Phoebe so it's oh I can't wait I'm counting down the minutes <laughs> got my coronation chicken in the in the fridge right now prep feel prep <laughs> <laughs>
Oh, I love you, Phoebe. Thank you. Love you. Thank you very much, Kieran. Really appreciate you making the time.